Hi there. Before we get to our show, I'm very excited to tell you that Future Hindsight is a finalist in this year's Signal Award. It's a big deal for an independent podcast like ours, and we thank you for your support and for listening. Now, please help us take home the win. Here's how. Go to vote.signalaward.com. That's vote.signalaward.com and select Future Hindsight in the public service and activism category. We can't do it without you. That's vote.signalaward.com. And thank you. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. We're turning to the branch of the government that we don't actually talk about much at all on the show, the judiciary, specifically the Supreme Court. We haven't talked about it much because, well, you know, it's supposed to be above the fray, a branch apart, separated from politics, independent, unelected, lifetime tenure law wizards in robes. That was always a myth, actually, but one the American people seemed fairly comfortable going along with. No longer. In the wake of the Dobbs decision, public opinion of the court has shifted, radically. The court's approval ratings are at historic lows. According to recent Gallup polling, only 47% of adults surveyed expressed having trust in the judicial branch of the federal government. That's a 20-point drop in just two years. Historically, that figure has usually hovered around the two-thirds mark. What used to be whispers about court reform have become louder. President Biden was even nudged hard enough to establish a largely symbolic presidential commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. Add to that recent New York Times reporting that revealed extremely concerning pay-to-play shenanigans involving evangelical ministries using fancy dinners, donations, and millionaires' vacation homes to cozy up to conservative justices. Put it all together and you have a bona fide legitimacy crisis enveloping a very undemocratic branch of our constitutional democracy. Joining me to figure out where we are and what we can do is Christopher Kang. He's the co-founder and chief counsel of Demand Justice. He served in the White House for nearly seven years as deputy counsel to President Obama and special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. Chris oversaw the selection, vetting, and confirmation of more than 220 of the president's judicial nominees and helped spearhead the confirmations of Supreme Court Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. Welcome to Future Hindsight. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. So I called it a legitimacy crisis at the high court. Is that the biggest problem facing the Supreme Court? And why is it such a profound issue? So I think that there definitely is a legitimacy crisis. I actually think that the symptom of the problem as opposed to the problem itself. I think right now when you think about the branches of government, you know, the courts really rely on trust. They rely on legitimacy. Sort of Alexander Hamilton talked about the fact that the executive branch has an army and Congress has the power of the purse. The court relies on its legitimacy. And when that trust is lost, you sort of break down this whole third branch of government. But I think it's reflective of the bigger problem 
which is that our judiciary has become too powerful and it's become too unbalanced. And when we think about balance, I want to encourage people to not just think about balance between Democratic-appointed and Republican-appointed justices. There definitely is imbalance there with six Republican-appointed justices and only three Democratic. But also to think about balance with respect to our three branches of government. And we think about checks and balances. And right now, the judiciary is getting more and more power. It's taking away the ability of the executive, the president, and the Congress to solve our nation's problems. And it's sort of running out of control. And I think that that is sort of the bigger problem that we need to grapple with when we think about our democracy. Right. Yeah. That's taking us toward a fundamental question, which is when things get out of whack, you know, out of balance in that way, how do you hold the unaccountable accountable, meaning the Supreme Court? I think that right now when you have a system of checks and balances set up in our Constitution and one branch of government gets too powerful, the other two branches are expected and really need to step in and do something to change that. And I think you mentioned before President Biden, he stood up at least a commission to think about the issue of Supreme Court reform and to talk about some of the underlying problems. But really here, Congress has the ability to reform the court, to expand it and restore balance by adding for justices and to impose a code of ethics and have some measure of accountability, those are the kinds of things that we really need to see to structurally change the way that our government is functioning right now. Mm -hmm. I want to ask a question that is kind of a meta question about legitimacy, which is if the court continues to insist that it is just a clutch of oracular judicial brains floating in aspic, you know, apart from and impervious to politics, that the only legitimacy crisis is one that has been created by the media, and so please stop talking about that, is there a way that that myth is itself damaging? You know, like the more we pretend, the worse it gets? Absolutely. And I think that the fact that you're having this conversation right now when people are starting to question the court at all is incredibly important. It's sort of the first step to solving this problem is for people to understand that the court is not this apolitical, independent branch of government, sort of as you said in the intro. Uh, that is a myth, and that's always been a myth. But I think it's a myth that in particular progressives and those of us who believe in government and the power of the institution to improve the lives of people in this country, we've been invested in upholding that myth and trying to give more legitimacy to the institution, whereas you know, conservatives have not believed that myth, sort of in response to Brown versus Board of Education desegregating public schools and in response to Roe versus Wade 50 years ago, they've embarked on this decades-long effort to reshape our courts and to politicize them. And I think that from progressive perspective, our view has been like, the, oh, no, 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 the court shouldn't be political, so we're not going to engage in that, and hopefully that will help depoliticize it, when in fact, it's been sort of unilateral disarmament. It's still becoming political, but it's only becoming political in a conservative way, and I think it's time for us to rethink about the conversation and the way we consider the courts so that we can really do something to hold the judiciary a little bit more accountable. Mm-hmm. Well, there does seem to be the shift on the part of the public, you know, people waking up that, like you said, people are being political on just one side, on the conservative side, but also 
the public is really expressing that they really don't like the court taking away rights that they thought were settled. So where do you direct that kind of dissatisfaction? What would be the number one issue to address in your eyes? So I think in terms of actually directing action, it is about lobbying members of Congress to understand that they need to step in and that they have tools available. I think that Supreme Court expansion in particular would be a way to reform the court and add balance to it. You know, I think a lot of times because the size of the Supreme Court has been nine for as long as as you and I have been alive, people think like that's the way that it's always been or that's the size of the court is set in the Constitution. And that's actually not true. Congress has changed the size of the Supreme Court seven times before. It's very much within their power and ability to change the size of the court again now to restore balance. And I think that forcing our elected leaders to understand that the court is a problem and to do something about it is really going to be important to affecting change. Right. So let's dig into court expansion a bit. How does court expansion increase or improve accountability? So I think right now, one of the challenges is that Republicans have twisted all of these norms and practices in a way that have really stolen the Supreme Court out from underneath the sort of small d democratic accountability. You know, they stole a seat from President Obama by not allowing Merrick Garland, his nominee then for the Supreme Court, to even receive a hearing. Uh, When President Trump's first judicial nominee, Neil Gorsuch, was too conservative to be confirmed with the required bipartisan support, they changed the rules so that he could be confirmed by a simple majority. And then Republicans, of course, confirmed Brett Kavanaugh, despite credible allegations of sexual assault and perjury. And then finally, They confirmed Amy Coney Barrett, you know, after 60 million Americans had already voted in the midst of an election, effectively stealing a seat from President Biden. And so you have all of these Republicans resting control of the court. And now we have six Republican appointed justices. A majority have been appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote in their initial election. And these Trump uh, justices were even confirmed by senators who represented a minority of the country. And so the court is moving further and further to the right. And so if we expanded the court, we added four seats to sort of right these wrongs, and in particular, these two Supreme Court seats that were stolen, that would provide more balance. And that would then start to have a little bit more legitimacy because you would have a court that is more reflective of where the country is. Right. So tell us a little bit about how we can go about expanding the court. So to expand the court, it just takes a simple law passed by the House and Senate. And I do think that, you know, sometimes, well, you know, like passing a law is very hard these days. And it is. It's not as hard as changing the Constitution, though. And you do have to start somewhere. And so there is actually a piece of legislation now introduced in both the House and Senate called the Judiciary Act. The law is very simple. It's, you know, you could write it on a napkin. Essentially, you're crossing out the number nine and, and inserting 13. And momentum for that legislation is growing over time. The the bill was introduced just a little more than a year ago, and it already has more than 60 co-sponsors. The Congressional Progressive Caucus supports it. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey and Tina Smith support it. There's building momentum, but we really need to get more senators and more representatives on board. And I think part of what we need to do is 
understand that every single issue that we care about really comes down to the courts. And I think that as progressives, we're very good about advocating for reproductive rights and civil rights and voting rights and fighting climate change and gun violence prevention. And those are all incredibly important issues that have policy solutions to them. But none of those solutions will be durable unless we also have a Supreme Court that will uphold them at the end of the day. And so part of what we have to do is really think about the court as part of our theory of change and part of the way that we're going to protect all of the advances that we're trying to achieve. I have sort of like a small technical question. Why four more seats? Four seats is one. It's historically based, sort of the size of the Supreme Court historically has reflected the number of circuit courts in the country. So the last time the size of the Supreme Court was set at nine, uh, there were nine circuit courts and now there are 13. The circuit courts are the level just below the Supreme Court. But also, again, when you think about the fact that Republicans effectively stole a seat from President Obama and instead of Merrick Garland, we have Neil Gorsuch and they effectively stole a seat from President Biden, uh, installing Amy Coney Barrett instead of a Democratic appointed justice. The only way to offset those two thefts is to add four seats to restore balance. And so that also would help ensure that the court is more reflective of where the country has been. Mm -hmm. We're taking a quick break, and I want to tell you about another podcast in our Democracy Group gang. If you like listening to us here at Future Hindsight, pretty sure you're going to love Politics in Question. It's a podcast about how our political institutions are failing us and ideas for fixing them. It's hosted by political scientists Lee Drutman, Julia Azari, and James Walner. There are three lively experts on American political institutions and reform, and together they imagine and also argue over what American politics could look like if citizens questioned everything. The Founding Fathers did their best, but Lee... Julia and James have some ideas too. You can find their podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and at politicsinquestion.com. Now, let's return to my conversation with Chris Kang. Well, I want to turn to ethics now and the Alito Hobby Lobby leak story from the New York Times a few weeks back, which was at once shocking and also not because quite a lot of the story built on prior reporting from Politico and Rolling Stone. Can you do us a favor and recap kind of what we learned about access to the justices by these anti-abortion, pro-Christian religious freedom groups? Yeah, I think one of the challenges with the Supreme Court generally is that we don't think of it as another political branch of government, and we don't think of it, therefore, as subject to the same kind of lobbying and pressures that I think we're accustomed to when it comes to Congress or the White House. And what I think the story reveals, in fact, is that conservatives have been lobbying the Supreme Court in very much the same pay-to-play uh, ways that they would lobby a member of Congress. And so you had a whistleblower come forward here who had been actively involved in creating this infrastructure in which they would recruit ultra-conservative religious activists 
who were wealthy donors. And these donors would donate money to the Supreme Court Historical Society so that they could get invited to events and hobnob with justices and then start inviting them to dinner and taking them out uh, on vacations and sort of getting to know them. And the purpose of this was so that the justices would feel more inclined and understand the base of support that is there if they were to abandon precedent and reach more and more conservative rulings. It's this idea that the Supreme Court justices know that 70 to 80 percent of people supported Roe versus Wade and access to reproductive rights. And so if they overturned Roe, there would be a big backlash in the country. But what this effort was meant to do was to show just how beloved they would be by the 20 percent and to give them the confidence and to sort of buck them up to sort of go that extra mile and discard the law and really start ruling in more and more extreme ways. Mm hmm. But the fallout to that story about this kind of lobbying has been invisible in a sense because the justices can respond to what are clearly big ethical problems with a kind of, you know, I thought about it and I decided it was okay. So I know that the Supreme Court has a code of ethics, but how is it enforced? It's not. I think that they have a a code of ethics on paper, but, you know, the Supreme Court of the United States is actually the only court in the entire country that does not have a binding code of ethics. It does not have an enforceable code of ethics. And I think the theory, perhaps, is that because they are Supreme Court justices, they are above reproach. They don't need a code of ethics because, of course, they're ethical. They're justices. And it's that mentality and sort of this putting them on a pedestal that I think is corrosive. And instead of accountability, because they're powerful, you sort of have corruption at the highest levels. You know, this is, again, a place where we'll see Congress stepping in, hopefully with more investigations into what exactly happened and how it happened and what the ethical issues are at play. But again, Congress has the ability to require the Supreme Court to have a binding code of ethics. And I think it's incredibly important to do this right away. It's something that probably should have been done decades ago. But, you know, the Supreme Court and Chief Justice Roberts have made clear that they're not going to hold themselves accountable when it comes to ethics. So here we need Congress to come in and do it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then, of course, we have Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny, where despite her involvement in the run-up to January 6th, including you know emails and calls to representatives campaigning for election denialism, but no recusals from Justice Thomas. It's kind of unbelievable when you say it out loud. What are your thoughts on that one? It is unbelievable that in the face of all of this, he refuses to recuse himself, which, again, when you think about it, there's still five other Republican justices. It's not as if stepping away would somehow determine the outcome of the case. Uh, Yet he's so personally invested in protecting his wife, sort of the very thing that you're trying to get away from with recusal, that he stays there. And Chief Justice Roberts doesn't say anything. Chief Justice Roberts doesn't compel him to recuse himself or to hold him accountable in any way. And he's sort of just thumbing his nose at the entire country and without any accountability. Now, you know, theoretically, 
Congress could step in and impeach Justice Thomas for what clearly is a breach of ethics here. But again, here, too, if you added four seats to the Supreme Court, um, we wouldn't get rid of Justice Thomas, but you certainly would minimize his influence, which I think would be important as well. I know the impeachment idea is uh, is so alluring, but actually I think it would take a lot of a lot of uh, effort <laughs> on the part of Congress to actually do that. But I have a question that's sort of, you know, and you've alluded to this before. There's some big constitutional questions here and an obstacle too, namely the separation of powers. The Supreme Court is unaccountable intentionally in some ways. Its independence is, of course, vital. So how do we get around that in terms of enforcing a code of ethics? So Congress cannot actually enforce a code of ethics itself other than through the impeachment power. But what it can do and what legislation has been proposed to do is require the court to adopt its own binding code of ethics. So Congress probably cannot lay out exactly what the code of ethics should be and what the enforcement mechanism is, but it can require the judiciary to act. And that, I think, is an important step. Every time Congress asks, and these justices sometimes come to testify before Congress, they ask about this code of ethics, the response from the judiciary always is, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We're we're holding ourselves accountable. In the face of, you know, almost, almost every week, there's a new ethics scandal around the court, I think that Congress needs to step in. And it is the widely adopted view of constitutional law professors, both progressive and conservative, that it can step in and require that the court adopt the code of ethics. Well, I think the shifting Overton window on court reform is really interesting. You know, you're not exactly yourself a revolutionary type, and please don't take offense, but you're a government person. And I would say, Five years ago, very few of the people who were in government or in working in institutions would take talking about court reform seriously. So what was the inciting incident for you to change your mind on this or to really, you know, you're, you're really knee deep in, in this work to make that happen? Yeah, you know, I think that for a lot of us who have joined this fight for court reform, the sort of tipping point has been something different, right? Some people, I think, have been talking about Supreme Court reform since uh, Bush versus Gore handed the presidency to George W. Bush in 2000. Or people have been engaging around reform in Citizens United or Shelby County versus Holder, which you know, obviously changed that gut our campaign finance rules or struck down a central tenant of the Voting Rights Act. You know, I think for me, you know, even even after the theft of a Supreme Court seat by Republicans in 2016 and 17, my reaction was not like, oh, we need to we need to expand the court. As you said, sort of having spent my career in government and really supporting the institution, I did have this sense that maybe expanding the court in response to this would just be a race to the bottom or would make the court more political. And so for me, you know, the tipping point, though, was really watching the Senate just line up and confirm Brett Kavanaugh in the face of not only credible sexual assault allegations, but also perjury, perjury regarding issues that he worked on, as a White House lawyer, issues of perjury perhaps around the sexual assault allegations as well, and the lack of accountability and the fact that Republicans felt so 
strongly and emboldened to go ahead and confirm him anyways really set to me like this is going to be the Supreme Court for the next 30 to 40 years that's going to be just one Republican power grab after another in order to shape it to be more and more ideological and partisan. And so like that was the moment for me where I said we need to do something serious about reform and why I started to come around on expansion in particular. I think that, you know, there are a lot of other reforms that we also support, including term limits, I think would be important. I think we need to start looking at the power of the court and the kinds of cases that it's allowed to take up. But that was the turning point for me. I think, you know, a lot of other people, the turning point was confirming Amy Coney Barrett in the run up to the last presidential election or here after the Supreme Court handed down Dobbs and stripped away rights from women and pregnant people, turning back the clock 50 years, like whatever the turning point is, we're now at the point where 70 percent of Democrats support Supreme Court expansion. And so you don't actually even need to be a revolutionary to be one of the people who are fighting for expansion today. Yeah, you don't need to be a revolutionary anymore. After the decision in June with Dobbs, I think people were like, whoa, what is happening? Really, this conversation is a, is a serious conversation about what it means to live in a democracy. So speaking of Supreme Court justice confirmations, you've become a little bit of a boogeyman. I mean, not personally, but it was like demand justice came in a close second after sex offenders for most talked about topic at Justice Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings. Does it worry you to draw that much fire or are you happy to be on the agenda? I think that if the best argument that Republicans have to wield against Biden judicial nominees is that they're supported by demand justice, then the nominees are doing pretty well. I think that it speaks a lot to the qualifications and experience and temperament that these judges bring. And so I think it's fine. I think that these Republican senators should be trying to talk about the actual issues, but if they don't have one and they want to use us as a proxy, you know, that's fine by us. So turning to the federal judiciary more broadly, Demand justice isn't just about the Supreme Court, which you already mentioned. So Biden has been confirming judges at a pretty good clip. But is it fast enough? You know, so far, President Biden has more judicial confirmations than President Trump did at this point in his presidency. Uh, But there's still a lot more work to be done. President Trump actually set the record for the most judges confirmed in a single term since 1980. And so President Biden and Senate Democrats need to redouble their efforts. It is incredibly important that Democrats will have control of the Senate for two more years and have the ability to continue confirming Biden judges. And they're going to need to make sure that they take every opportunity to do so. With a 51-49 Senate, the Senate Judiciary Committee in particular will be able to consider and confirm judges much more quickly. Right now, there's a constant threat of an evenly divided vote, which really creates a backlog on the floor and makes it harder to confirm some really good nominees, in particular those who might have civil rights or public defender backgrounds. And so with a little bit more, even though it's only one more vote uh, in the Senate, and I do think that that would give a little bit more flexibility on the floor, the really big difference is that having a judiciary committee that can really push through judges more easily will help move the pipeline even faster. 
And there's a big departure from the previous administration in terms of the kinds of folks President Biden is nominating. Tell us a little bit more about that. President Biden's judicial nominees have brought unprecedented diversity to our courts. Two-thirds have been women and two-thirds have been people of color, which really is necessary if we're going to end up having a judiciary that reflects the people they serve. But I think even more important and revolutionary than that is the professional background of President Biden's judges. Uh, In the Obama administration, when I advised the president, he also set records with respect to racial diversity and gender and LGBTQ judges. But a lot of those judges had the same professional backgrounds as those appointed by other Democratic presidents or even Republican presidents. You know, we have this judicial system where the overwhelming majority of our judges are either former prosecutors or corporate law partners. They come from a very particular perspective when it comes to what they've been arguing for and how they understand the law. And what President Biden has done is he had said, look, when I say we need balance on the court, I need all kinds of balance. And he said, I want to put forward more public defenders and not just prosecutors. I want to put forward civil rights lawyers and legal aid lawyers, lawyers who have represented individual Americans, not just corporations and institutions. And so a majority of his judges have come from that background. You know, one of the exciting things about Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson's nomination is that she's obviously the first black woman to ever serve on the Supreme Court. She's also the first public defender to ever serve on the Supreme Court. President Biden's lower court nominees, he's the first president to nominate more public defenders than prosecutors. And it's really revolutionary and it's setting the bar for future Democratic presidents. And I hope changing the way that the legal profession and law students think about the law and what is important and what we value and how we can really change it so that our judges have experience representing everyday Americans and really come at the law from a different perspective than just that of being on the side of the wealthy and powerful. Mm -hmm. Well, why is that diversity of professional background so important and, and how does it change them as judges or indeed justices? I think that professional background as well as demographic background is important because, again, I think we like to pretend that once somebody becomes a judge and they put on a robe that they're sort of a clean slate and the only thing in front of them is, you know, legal briefs and the law. But the reality is we're all shaped by our life experiences. We all understand the facts differently based on those experiences. And even if the law is the same, the way that we think about it might be different. And I think one example in the gender context is Uh, There was a time when Justice Ginsburg was the only woman justice on the court, and the court was considering a case in which a school principal strip-searched a teenage girl. And the other justices, the male justices, well, like, I don't understand why that's a big problem. Like, we're in our underwear in gym class all the time. And Justice Ginsburg said, well, you clearly you've never been, you know, a teenage girl. And again, like the facts were the same, but the perspective that she brought and the moment where she's like, you need to consider this from a different perspective really helped change 
the tenor of the debate and I think perhaps even the outcome of the decision. In the same way, if you have only judges who have been on the prosecution side and you've never had judges who have actually represented people accused of crimes or you've never had judges who have who have represented low-income individuals, either in the criminal context or in legal aid, your perspective of what the law is and your perspective of what is reasonable is going to be shaped by that. And I think we need more diversity of experiences so that judges can really learn from one another and come to the best result. That's a great example with uh, Justice Ginsburg. And, you know, like you said, the lived experience is really really important in the way that we process and make decisions. I said at the top that we haven't talked about the judiciary much on the show. We're really a civic engagement show, but it's clearly time to get engaged on this. So what are two things an everyday person can do? I think one thing that everyday people need to do uh, or can do more broadly is to reconsider how we think about the courts and to reconsider. I think one of the challenges is that progressives have not been engaged around the courts, not only because we don't want to think about them politically, but we've actually been told not to politically engage around the courts, right? We've been told that because the courts are meant to be independent and apolitical, it would be wrong for us to activate and and educate around the court in political ways. And I think like we have to challenge ourselves to break free of that mentality. And so I think thinking about the courts differently when you see a ruling, like considering whether or not they were Republican-appointed judges or Democratic-appointed judges and thinking through how that might affect the outcome of the case. Getting more educated, we have actually a new site called Balls and Strikes. Uh, it's ballsandstrikes.org, where we break down a lot of these Supreme Court decisions and lower court decisions in plain English, but also in more politically realistic ways. So you understand just how it is that these courts are making what's really a partisan decision. And the media is cloaking them as if they are um, based on the law. And I think that that is a mentality that we need to break. And then really, from a practical perspective, I think thinking about engaging your members of Congress. I know so many of your listeners are already engaged in civic engagement, including lobbying their members of Congress on issues that are important to them to add Supreme Court reform to their list of things that they're talking to their friends and neighbors and members of Congress about. Expansion in particular, you know, we have 60 co-sponsors of the Judiciary Act but need more, and then Supreme Court ethics as well. I think the first way that we're really going to break down the unaccountability of the court is by talking about it more and having more conversations. I think understanding that there's a problem and educating our friends and neighbors about the court and all of the problems in it will go a long way toward that. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think a lot of people, you know, as we know, have not been thinking about it uh, precisely because we have been told that they're really above the fray and they're good people and they're ethical. And it turns out that, you know, <laughs> as it turns out, they're humans just like us and they're corruptible just like us. <laughs> so as we're rounding out our conversation here, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think that the conversation is changing. And I do think when it came to the 2016 election, President Trump won voters who said the Supreme Court was an important or very important issue. He won them by two points. And a lot of people point to that margin 
as the reason why he won the presidency. In 2020, President Biden won those voters by six points. And so you're sort of starting to see already this shift in this understanding that the Supreme Court is a very important issue, and it's an issue that we should start basing our votes on. And I think as you start to see this conversation change, as you start to see more people become activated around the courts, it's incredibly inspiring to see what might be possible uh, in a world in which Democrats in the Senate and in the White House really put the same priority on the courts that Republicans have for so long. Well, that is indeed hopeful. As you said, 70 percent of Democrats are now motivated to make court reform possible. So thank you very much for joining us, Chris. It was really a pleasure to have you on. Thanks again for having me. Christopher Kang is the co-founder and chief counsel of Demand Justice. Next week, we're going to be sharing a fascinating episode from a show called Some of My Best Friends Are. It's hosted by Ben Austin and Khalil Gibran Mohammed, and they'll be talking with Donald Yakovone about his book, Teaching White Supremacy. In the midst of new laws to ban books about race and the teaching of slavery, Yakovone digs through thousands of school textbooks to find what's truly the common thread. Spoiler alert, it's whiteness. The episode will explore the ways the history we've been teaching over the last 300 years isn't necessarily the history we made and how that has informed our current social crisis. That's next week. Meanwhile, I'll be back with you on January 5th with fresh conversations to keep you engaged well beyond voting, but short of running for office. Thank you so much for being dedicated listeners and engaged citizens in our pursuit of a better, stronger democracy for all. Happy holidays and all the best for a terrific new year. Until next year, stay engaged. And before I go, first of all, thanks for listening. You must really like the show if you're still here. We have an ask of you. Could you rate us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts? It seems like a small thing, but it can make a huge difference for an independent show like ours. It's the main way other people can find out about the show. We really appreciate your help. Thank you. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.